I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Scientific study has not only provided us with new tools and technologies, it has frequently improved upon the tools themselves. Presently, mammography is one such extraordinary tool used to detect breast cancer. And now scientists are discovering that blood tests can actually help spot the cancers that a mammography could miss and could become a powerful and necessary tool in early cancer detection. Dr. Joshua LeBaire knows this well. Dr. LeBaire is one of the nation's foremost investigators in the rapidly expanding field of personalized medicine. He's executive director and professor at Arizona State University's Biodesign Institute and center director at their Center for Personalized Diagnostics. Dr. LeBaire's efforts involve leveraging the center's formidable resources for the discovery and validation of biomarkers, unique molecular fingerprints of disease which can provide early warning for those at risk of major illnesses, including cancer and diabetes. Among many other roles, Dr. LeBaire serves on a number of government scientific advisory boards and has been a BCRF investigator since 2001. Before my conversation with Dr. LeBaire, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations. And if so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Joshua LeBaire. Dr. LeBaire, thank you for joining. I appreciate your time. It's a pleasure to be here. So speaking of time, in reading about you, the absolute first question that came to my mind, did you have time to sleep at all in 2020, or were you awake for 366 days straight? I mean, you, you didn't have enough diseases, different diseases you were working on, and then COVID came along? Uh, 2020 was definitely a pretty busy year for us. I think, you know, our, our usual re- research uh, activities keep us pretty busy, but uh, the advent of, of uh, COVID-19 uh, hit us here in Arizona pretty hard. At a couple points, we were leading the world in new cases, and um, and there was not enough testing, and so our lab was busy with that. Uh, busy with that is uh, just a slight understatement, of course. Um, you were preeminent, might not be the exact word you might choose, but delivering the saliva-based testing, really among the many revolutions that many scientists contributed to our society, but uh, that work of you and your team was obviously fundamental for all of us. So thank you for that, I'm sure. Thanks. And aside from that little piece of work, um, let's talk about, uh, you know, the the many other areas, and we'll have a particular focus on breast cancer. And maybe before we before we get into your work, among other things, you are a scientist and a researcher um, on a lot of areas, including breast cancer. Um, but you have also received personally what you called the phone call. And that changed not only your personal life, but I also believe in some ways the trajectory of your professional life. Tell me Absolutely. about Absolutely. I've been a medical oncologist. That was my specialty. And I was um, a physician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Uh, 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 when I got a phone call from my mom um, that they had found a mass in her breast and that 
um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and that, you know, you know, it's, it's one thing to treat patients. It's another thing when it's a family member, it's a whole different feeling, right? I mean, um, and, and being a physician is a mixed blessing there on one side, you know, that because you're a physician, you can help, you know, uh, in ways that maybe people who aren't couldn't, and especially because you're a cancer doctor, but at the same time, your mind immediately does all the math and you, you already start thinking worst case scenarios because you've seen them all. And so all of that was kind of going on at the same time. Yeah, it was, it was not an easy situation having to sort of think that through and try to offer her help. Of course, she was across the country. I was at, in Boston at the time and my mother lived in the Bay Area. So, um, you, you, you know, you can't immediately sort of, you know, come to her house and help her with all that. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, it definitely changed the way I thought about things. Yeah, I would imagine so. Uh, it does for so many people in, in so many different ways. The major difference, obviously, for most folks is what you described. Um, you're in the business. Um, so, you know, relatedly to that, um, let me ask you a question that you once posed, uh, maybe more than once, but once that I've seen, um, that you posed publicly, can we find breast cancer with a blood test? That's a great question. So, um, not yet, um, but we are making great progress in that direction. So we do have a screening test for breast cancer and that nominally is mammography special type of x-ray taken of the breast. And there are certain findings that indicate the presence of cancer. It often can find cancer. It, it also though has its limitations. It, it does miss a fraction of, of, of real cancers. And a lot of the findings by mammography turn out not to be cancer. In fact, 80% of the time that mammography identifies something, it's not cancer. So most of the time it's wrong. So that puts a limit on Man, the false positives make for a lot of anxiety and, and maybe some unnecessary surgical work as well. Plenty of unnecessary surgery. Yeah, it's not just anxiety. It is unnecessary surgeries. Mm. Uh, women have to go for biopsies that, you know, where they, you know, are, have sleepless nights waiting to get the pathology results back uh, from, those, from those studies. So it absolutely leads to um, uh, procedures that might not be necessary. So um, and, and then there are some women who, um, their breasts because of density or other issues are prone to false positive results. And so they're, you know, frequently going back to the clinic because someone saw something mm. that they're not happy with and have to get yet another procedure. And so, um, this is where a blood test could be very helpful. A blood test could help us find those cancers that get missed by mammography. And importantly, those blood tests could help us identify uh, women who um, may have had a finding, but is unlikely to have cancer. And so that, that's, that, that was a, an important direction that our laboratory sort of took off on was, could we help identify what we call biomarkers? These are things that are circulating in the bloodstream that indicate the presence of cancer. Um, and the hope of course, is to find those cancers early uh, because the earlier we find the cancer, the better chance we have of of stopping the disease. Um, in my mother's case, for example, by the time it was positive in the mammogram, it was already pretty advanced. Um, and so, uh, you know, who knows if there had been a blood test, you know, for the earlier mammography, maybe it would have tipped people. If, you know, when we went back and looked at the old mammogram, 
you could see something that was at the spot. It wasn't enough to call it, but it was there. Um, maybe a blood test at that time might have helped. I saw at one point a statistic you noted um, that you were that that the blood tests, or at least in a trial, and you'll correct me if I'm getting this slightly wrong, reduced the biopsy rate by 63%, which kind of knocked me off my chair. I mean, that's a what a massive percentage. So, um, where where are you on the trials, and and you know what do you see ahead on on this part of your work? The the markers that we identified have, have were licensed out to a company called Provista, and they ran a number of prospective clinical trials. Um, what they what they found in those trials was that the test uh, that included these markers was had what's what what we in the business call a strong negative predictive value. That is to say that in um, women who don't have cancer. Um, the test said they didn't have cancer mm-hmm. most of the time, 90 something percent of the time. So that, that was looking very positive. Unfortunately, Provista ran into some um, business challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so right now um, they are, uh, they don't exist anymore. And so the markers have been, um, that test has now been transferred to a new company. They plan to offer the test at the end of this year. So the test is right now, not on the market. It's kind of waiting uh this is the where where science meets business. I, I, I was going to say, I mean, you're solving all the scientific problems. Perhaps for your next trick, you can solve all of our business problems as well. Right. This is, you know, that diagnostics is always a funny space in medicine because if you offer a drug, people are willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars for a course of therapy. Mm. But if you order a diagnostic test, you know, nobody wants to spend more than 40 bucks. And um, sometimes the diagnostic tests are critical because they can save you all that therapeutic stuff. Um, so um, it's a, it's a, and, and the, and the, the clinical trials you have to run for diagnostics are not that different from the clinical trials you have to run for a therapeutic. So it, it's often very expensive to get a, a diagnostic to market. And what, what the business people sometimes refer to as the upside, you know, the, the money yeah, you can yes. make, not as yeah. always as big. So, you know, it's, it, this is a battle that we in the diagnostic space are always fighting. We're always trying to remind people how important it is to be able to find something because you can make such a difference if you can find it early. Yeah. Well, boy, th- this surely could be a whole separate conversation, but it feels to me like you may have just described a metaphor for the U.S. healthcare system overall and, and some of the challenges. This could really change the way we treat cancer in the future, couldn't it? A lot of us agree that a key element of cancer management in the future is the ability to find it as early as possible. Mm. Cancer typically takes many years to develop. You know, many studies that have been done here suggest that it may take well over a decade for cancers to develop in our bodies. So the key is, can we find them when they're still small and before they've spread? Because, you know, what most of the time is where the damage occurs is when the cancers break out and spread around our bodies, something that we call metastasis. Um, And uh, oftentimes cancers may form initially in the breast, for example, or if it's a lung cancer in the lung, but where they cause their damage is when they spread to the brain as it it did in my mother's case, or um, when it gets to other parts of the body, critical, critical organs and such. 
Yes, and I've uh, had the privilege of having conversations with um, other researchers like yourself, some of whom are focused really specifically on the metastasis issues and how to recognize when it's starting to travel and if it's arrived someplace else. And yeah, particularly with breast cancer, metastasis is uh, uh, just among the many, uh, the massive um, challenges, which actually may help... um, help describe some of uh, what I want to ask you about next, um, which is what are personalized diagnostics? Right. So uh, personalized diagnostics is an interesting term. You know, uh, on, on, on one hand, those of us who are physicians always know that from the begin from the day we became doctors, we always personalized our care. In the very early days of medicine, people described symptoms. They, you know, people would say that the patient has, you know, a fever or the patient has diarrhea. And that's the, that was the diagnosis at the time. Um, In the, in the, you know, 17th and 18th centuries, people recognized that there were different causes of those things. Hmm. And that by recognizing the cause, you could be more precise in the treatment of that thing. And then I would say in the, in the, in the 19th and the 20th century, the dominant tool to look at that stuff was the microscope. Doctors would get specimens from patients, they would look under the microscope, and they would make a diagnosis. And when I went to medical school, a diagnosis might be something like, you know, ductal adenocarcinoma of the breast. And it looked like something under a microscope, and that was the diagnosis. What emerged in the the last half, the last bit of the 20th century, and is certainly dominant in our 21st century, is, is the addition of molecules to that process. So we now know that ductal carcinoma of the breast can actually take many different molecular forms, um, something called luminal A or luminal B or HER2 dominant or triple negative. These are all terms that you'll hear doctors use now. And what they're referring to is molecules that they see in the cancer. And those the, the pattern of molecules in those different cancers tell us that they behave differently, hmm. that they respond to different drugs, and that they may have a different prognosis. And so by recognizing those different molecular forms, we are we can be more precise in, in what we know the patient has, and we can be more precise in treating the patient. And, um, and so that's what we're referring to as personalized. Some people now use the term precision diagnosis mm-hmm. um, to, to kind of more refer to that molecular form. And, and the better we get at understanding those molecular forms, the better we can get at treating those patients by knowing what how to tailor our therapies to the specific molecular form that that patient has. And what is the P53 protein and why does it demand so much of your attention? Well, P53 is a protein that was identified uh, uh, well back in the, in the um, 20th century towards, uh, and, and it's, a, it's the most commonly mutated gene in cancer, uh, in, in human cancer. It is, it is mutated in many, many cancers. Um, it, it was um, controversial when it first was identified because initially it was thought to be what we call an oncogene, a gene that drives cancers. And then later it was found to be the opposite. It was a gene that pre- prevents cancer called a tumor suppressor gene. Wow. Um, and then now it's come around full circle and there are elements of it that act both as a tumor suppressor gene and as an oncogene, which may explain why it's so commonly mutated in cancer. Um, people think of it as a, uh, have referred to it as the guardian of the genome. It's hmm. a gene that that somehow um, prevents mutation in its in its activities. 
Um, but when it gets mutated, it can definitely cause trouble uh, and lead to cancer. Uh, it is commonly found in breast cancer. Um, it's especially commonly found in a type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer. The triple and, negative, yeah. And triple negative refers to the lack of the estrogen receptor and the progesterone receptor uh, and the HER2 uh, receptor. And so the, um, the uh, uh, w- people, women with, the, with that type of breast cancer often have mutations in their P53 gene. And um, we and many, many other scientists are trying to better understand how um, mutations in that gene lead to cancer and perhaps a little bit understand this sort of dual role that this protein plays, both as a, as a protector against cancer, but also when mutated um, as something that helps drive cancers. And if I'm understanding correctly, some of your work to try to determine how to reactivate that protector part, how to reactivate the tumor suppressing powers. Where are you on that? Is a challenge, how do you activate the good without also stimulating the bad part of that protein? One of the funny elements of P53, and one of the reasons we believe that it has these sort of dual roles, is that classically, when a gene prevents cancer, then anything that messes it up, any kind of mutation that messes it up, like a deletion or a truncation, meaning they cut it out completely or break it into pieces, that, that's typically the kind of mutation pattern you see with genes that prevent cancer. But P53 doesn't follow that pattern. Mm-hmm. Most of the mutations found in, in cancer have very specific point mutations. They have very subtle you know, changes in one or two what are called bases, you know, these little letters that are in our our DNA alphabet, one is changed, just one subtle change, and that yes. changes everything. It, it causes the cancer. And, and so um, that's the pattern you see with 53, which would be more typical for the genes we call oncogenes, genes that drive cancer. So what, what our group has done is we've identified the 10 most commonly mutated changes that occur in breast cancer, and we've introduced them into a cell line that doesn't normally have a mutant P53. And we've asked, you know, what does it do there? What is it, how is it changing the behavior of those cells in a way that leads to cancer? And do the different mutations behave differently, which, which they do? And, and what other genes are they collaborating with to cause the cancer? And, and that latter question is an important one because it turns out that cancer is not commonly caused by single gene changes. Um, most cancers arise because multiple genes have changed over time. Recall that I mentioned earlier that cancer takes well over a decade often to, to cause uh, to, to occur. And during that time period, multiple genes are getting altered. And so what we're trying to understand is how do we understand what other genes are participating with the cancer? Now we're doing that because um, as you mentioned, what we really want to do is replace the good function of P53. Well, it's hard to give back a function. Hmm. So what we're looking at is, well, maybe these collaborator genes, these other genes that are also helping cancer, maybe we can block those. Maybe if we identify what those other genes are that are working together with P53 to cause the cancer, that would be a target that we could inhibit, we could block and, and at least prevent part of that cancer causing pathway. So um, that, you know, we're just get, we've actually gathered up a huge amount of information on these, on these different mutant forms of P53. And the goal, of course, is now um, to get all that information out there so people can use it to help identify where those, where to target um, 
those cancers. You know, in listening to you right now, also in reading about you, it, it was evident. You just, you know, you just talked about we and reading about you. The word that I came across a lot is team. Yes. Talk to me about that, because many of us outside of science, we've got this image, right? There's a, you know, crazy, mad scientist, maybe, you know, someone who looks a little bit like you in a white lab coat, uh, working all night in bad lighting. Um, How do you describe a team approach to science research, and why does it matter? The team is everything in science, and and I think that's only becoming more and more the case as science advances further and further. Um, You know, years ago when I was a graduate student, it was not uncommon to find what I would call boutique scientific labs. They were small labs, Mm -hmm. five or 10 people working on a very focused question using a, a kind of technology that their lab had developed and using that approach to solve their problems. Um, But as science has advanced more and more, and we've gotten much more technological, now um, the the kind of science that my lab does involves whole teams of individuals uh, because we're using very high technology. So part of what, um, you know, uh, frankly, BCRF has been critical for, for us is enabling us to build a library of genes for the human. So we've built the largest collection of full-length genes anywhere on Earth. Uh, We now have nearly every human gene assembled uh, because we want to look at how those genes might participate in causing cancer. Well, to do that, you need a team. You need need people who are good at computers to identify those genes and gene sequences and assemble them in a format that allows you to produce the clones. You need people who are good at robots to be able to run the actual devices that can actually run thousands of genes at a time because, you know, doing something five or 10 times you can do by hand, but doing something a thousand times you need help with. And then, and then of course, we need people who are good at chemistry to, to set up the assays that those robots will activate. So you need people with lots of different scientific expertise, people from different disciplines to come together in a group, in a team to, to make this sort of thing happen. Um, uh, that, that became critical, for example, when we set up our COVID testing as well. Um, you know, we had to have people from eight or 10 different disciplines come together as a team working in parallel to make big things happen. And, and so, um, the modern science, modern biology really occurs in a, in a coordinated team approach. Um, and part of the fun of it, frankly, is learning how to speak all those different scientific languages and sitting at the table when all those different people are talking in their different languages and, and bringing them all together so they can all understand each other and work as a group, um, it's, it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it sounds like it. And it sounds like uh, you are, I mean, people like you are part scientist, um, part conductor, part maybe multilingual translator. And uh, it, you know, it's a, a wide range of skills as we close out the conversation. How did you get into this? I mean, for just at the, was it always science for you? Did you grow up? Were you ever thinking you were going to maybe be a, an orchestra conductor instead? Or did you know from the start uh, you were a science guy? Well, so it's interesting. When I, when I went to college, I had this, you know, the, in those days, the classic middle class notion that I was either going to be a lawyer or a doctor. Mm. And um, very quickly decided that I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Um, but then I took this course in organic chemistry from a, a very famous organic chemist at Berkeley called Hank Rabaport. And mm. um, that, that organic chemistry course, it was an honors course. The difference between the honors course and the regular course was rather than doing cookbook experiments, 
where you basically do the experiment because you know it's going to work. We did a multi-step long-term synthesis of a molecule that we learned early in the course had never been made before. Wow. And when I heard that, something tripped in me. I thought, that's pretty cool. We're doing something that no one's ever done before. And the more I looked into research, I realized that's what research is. It's about doing things that people have never done before. And it's it's about standing on the edge of human knowledge and looking into the dark and saying, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to discover something new. And when that bug bit me, it bit me hard. I just, I thought, I got to do that. Whatever, whatever I do in my future, it has to be about discovering new things. And, and so then I decided that if I was going to do, I still like medicine, but I had to do the PhD part. I had to do the research part. And since that time, I've always been a, um, a physician scientist, someone who I do love medicine and I love caring for patients. Um, but what, what I love the most is discovering new things. And so um, that, that sort of set me on that road. And then as I got further and further into science, I think, I think my passion for learning different disciplines of science and, and, and learning how to integrate them only grew. Well, we are grateful that you are in the role that you are in now. How would you describe the role that BCRF? Hard to overstate the role that BCRF plays. You know, uh, in our role as scientists, we always have to justify what we do by writing what are called research grants in you know, these applications to get funding for what we do. Um, the, the funding mechanisms in this country are, are fantastic, but they are complex and they are often challenging. These days it's gotten so competitive to get some of those grants that you have to have already done the work to get the mm. funding to do the work that you're trying to apply for. Um, and sometimes when you have a creative idea, like the type of protein microarrays that my lab does or cloning a large cl- uh, library of human genes, Um, It's just not something that the government is set up for funding and they're just not going to even look at it. And that's where BCRF comes in because BCRF, you know, helps fund the investigator and they say, you know, look, you're a creative person. You've done very good work on these other things. Let's give you funds to do something new, to do something creative, to do something that you um, might not get funded from an NIH grant or it might take you years to get funded. And we don't want to wait that long. Uh, for you to, to to get that funding, we want you doing that right now. And so it has enabled me to do projects that um, I just could not easily get funding from NIH. And and I, you know, I've been pretty successful at getting funding from NIH. But there are some things I just can't get from them. And uh, you know, BCRF is sort of willing to fund us to do those things just just because of what BCRF does. It's it's been phenomenal. Well, that's terrific, Um, and glad that it has been, but more importantly, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you have done, and in your words, standing on the edge and staring into the darkness, trying to find the light for the rest of us. Thanks very much. That was my conversation with Dr. Joshua LeBaire. My thanks to Dr. LeBaire for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.